You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. It's dealing with sickness, it's dealing with sin, it's dealing with hostility, it's dealing with two friends falling out, estrangement and enmity. It's about healing, the healing of a heavy soul, and it's about sin that needs forgiving and sickness that needs healing. And the way that this works is, first of all, it tells us a principle, then it tests that principle to see if the principle itself actually works out in experience. And here's the problem for us. For many of us who claim to be Christians, what we sometimes find is that what we believe, what we say, that our experience sometimes goes contrary to that. And that can be really, really difficult. That's why I love the Psalms, because they address many different kinds of situations. Here in particular, they're addressing the heavy heart, the person who's really burdened, the person who's really struggling. And I'm preparing this, and as I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, I wonder who this is for. And as I went through it, I realized it was for me, and I hope also that it will be for you. It is about a really heavy burden. The Hebrew word for glory, for the glory of God, is a word kabod, which means heavy. And here, there's this notion of not the glory of God being heavy and weighty, but sin being heavy and weighty, and sickness being heavy and waiting. Uh, I said to Annabelle this morning, I'm just fed up hearing about people being sick. It's not that I don't... Um, you don't want to hear when people are, are ill, but just it seems as though that uh, there's so much illness uh, and so many problems and, uh, and so many difficulties. And sometimes it weighs on you really, really heavily. So let's go through this and let's look at, the first of all, the principle. Verses 1 to 3. Blessed is he who has regard for the weak. The Lord delivers him in times of trouble. The Lord will protect him and preserve his life. He will bless him in the land and not surrender him to the desire of his foes. The Lord will sustain him on his sickbed and restore him from his bed of illness. Here's the principle. If you care for the weak and for the needy, then the Lord will care for you when you have times of trouble. Now, you need to think about that principle. That's a principle I think that's taught elsewhere in the Bible as well. The principle of care for the weak and needy. We're looking at things with Tierfan and so on. And, you know, nobody, no politician, no Christian, no person who wants to be a, seen as a decent member of society is going to say, no, I don't care for the weak and needy. No one's going to act like that. But I, I want to move this away from the words and to say, well, how does that work out in our lives? Exodus, I'm going to give you some verses from the Bible. Uh, there are literally hundreds in the Bible about this. Care for the weak and needy. Exodus 22, 21. Do not mistreat an alien or oppress him, for you were aliens in Egypt. Exodus 23, 9. Do not oppress an alien. You yourself know how it feels to be aliens, because you were aliens in Egypt. Leviticus 19.9, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. 
I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 10.18. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. Proverbs 14.21. He who despises his neighbor sins, but blessed is he who is kind to the needy. Proverbs 19.17. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward him for what he has done. Matthew 5. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And those are just a handful of many, many verses which tell us what God's concern for the poor, for the oppressed, for the alien is. Now we have two problems with this. First of all, there are Christians who said, yes, 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 this is great, 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 this is what we want. And they have ignored the heart of the Christian gospel and said the Christian gospel is all about social justice and they've turned the Christian gospel into a political platform. And what's happened is more conservative Christians, I'm not saying in a political sense, but in a biblical sense, who know the gospel is about um, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, his atonement and so on, have said, oh, we don't want to go that route because that's social gospel. Trouble is, thinking like that is also of the devil. Because the gospel is good news for the poor. The fact is that the person who leaves out the atonement of Jesus Christ, puts the cross to the side, except only as an example, is obviously denying the gospel. But the Christian who says, I believe in the cross, can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood, who can sing that sincerely and yet ignores the poor, that is also distorting and twisting and neglecting the gospel. And it is a basic, basic principle that if we are a believer in Jesus Christ, here we're being taught, blessed, you are happy, you are blessed, you are honored by God. If you have regard for the weak, the Lord delivers him in times of trouble. What Lynn Patterson told us this morning, we had Lynn Patterson from Tear Fund here. And very interesting what she was saying, that Tear Funder are thinking not so much about, you know, do you just give someone something, but how do you give it? What's the purpose? How does it work? How do we deal with root causes of poverty as well. And I think for us, it, is, it has got to be essential that we care for the weak and needy. And, and there are lots of reasons why, not just for us, but for our culture and society. And I want to make an observation here that some of you may not agree with, and we can argue the history of it another time, but this is how this works, at least uh, I see it. This country, uh, and I'm talking about Scotland, and I'm also talking about the United Kingdom, that uh, because of Christianity, the, well, there was a tremendous concern for the poor. In Scotland, the Presbyterian Church at the time of John Knox taught there were four central marks of the church. One was the teaching of the word. The other was the sacraments, that so we have the Lord's Supper. Third was discipline in the church, that um, people become members in the church and there's a disciplined community. And the fourth was this, and not many people know this, was what they called distribution. And that was that it was an essential part of a New Testament church to distribute to the poor, to care for people, to deal with the sick. Now, 
that, is, that remain part of the Scottish Church for many, many years. For example, when the Free Church was formed in 1843, Thomas Chalmers reinstituted the office of deacon. And deacons weren't about church buildings. What deacons did was this. In this church, for example, they would go and they would take collections round the houses. And these were not for the church building. They were for the poor. And then they would distribute that in different ways. It was uh, an, an considered an essential part of the church. And then something happened in the 20th century. Different things. First of all, there came a kind of theology into the church which was um, tied up with the Schofield Bible and the Derbyite brethren, which basically said that the church is getting smaller and smaller and the world is getting wickeder and wickeder and all we've got to do is preserve the church as a holy group ready for when Jesus returns because Jesus is going to return pretty soon and then he'll sort it out. But meanwhile, we've got to be holy and pure. And that created a very, very inward-looking mentality. But the remnants of Christianity remained in our culture. And after the end of the Second World War, there was a famous report called the Beveridge Report, out of which came our current welfare system. If you read that report, you'd be astonished at how the Beveridge Report relies upon a Christian understanding of the world and a Christian perspective of uh, work. For example, it expects that uh, people who can work should work. Unemployment benefit was not intended for people who wouldn't work. Um, it talks about the sick and how we care for the sick and so on. And from that grew our modern welfare state, which was based upon Christian principles, that the sick would be looked after, that the unemployed would receive unemployment benefit, people would receive social care and so on. What's happened is that as Christianity has receded, these things have been distorted, and now we find ourselves in a situation where government is saying we can't afford this anymore. And what, what is going to happen more and more is that social work departments and um, hospitals and others are going to find themselves cutting back and cutting back and cutting back. And those who can provide for themselves will, but the poor and the weak, ones who slip through the net, then there's going to be tremendous, I think, social upheaval. And that's where we come back here into what the church should be doing. The Trussell Trust are setting up two food banks in the UK every single week just now. Handing out food in Britain, in 21st century Britain, handing out food to people who can't afford it. It's not as bad as in many, many other countries throughout the world. But nonetheless, it's astonishing that that is happening in this country. And the church, we're gonna, we are going to be part of that. And it's a basic principle that we care for the weak and we care for the needy and we have to care for one another. And those of us who are Christians, who have been brought up in a culture which is very inward looking, very self-contained, very me, 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 we're going to have to come back to a more biblical understanding that what we have is there to be used to help other people. And David, in this psalm, is saying this is the principle, the basic principle. If you care for the weak, then when it's your turn, when things are bad for you, God will care for you. 
In fact, there's a lovely, lovely expression. He's talking about illness. In verse 3, he says, The Lord will sustain him on his sickbed and restore him from his bed of illness. It's actually, literally, I, I love this actually, the Lord will change his bed in all his illness. Now, I, I was prepared to, uh, in fact, I have entitled this, The Lord the Nurse. If you can have the Lord the Shepherd and so on, and the, the Lord the Physician, the Lord the Doctor, you can have the Lord the Nurse. And what this verse is saying is that when you are so ill, you are lying in your bed, and if, if nobody changes your bed, and if nobody changes you, then you're going to get bed sores, you're going to smell, it's going to be absolutely awful. It's basically saying, God will care for you. God, the Lord will change his bed in all his illness. This promise is we are, protect, we are promised protection and preservation. And God is giving that as an incentive for us. It's a kind of insurance policy, if you like, as well. There are many reasons for helping people because we love them and we're altruistic and so on. But here is a reason that is given that it just simply says, you care for the poor, God will care for you. Now, he then goes on to, he's dealing with a situation where he himself is struggling. And in verse 4, he says this, I said, O Lord, have mercy on me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. He's having various difficulties in his life. We'll see what some of those are in a moment, but one of them is clearly physical illness. And yet, the thing that he prays for, first of all, is for spiritual healing. Sin is like a disease. It is an offense against God, but it's like a disease that rots our inmost being. And the psalmist cries out to God, Lord, I've got all these problems, I've got all these troubles, and all these discouragements, but first of all, I ask for healing from my sin. Now, we're uncomfortable I think, with that kind of language, except in a very general and religious sense. Let me read to you what a man called David Wells says. <clears throat> if we then in this generation have lost our ability to name our sin, and we have, we have nevertheless not lost our sin. We may call it by other names, we may not, may not even recognize it at all, and we always misinterpret it. Our moral radar is defunct. And yet moral reality keeps intruding into our existence. The threads of a moral existence are ever-present. It is thus that creation is the great ally of the gospel, while culture and the fallen self are its great enemies. This is the awful contradiction that cuts through all of life, and it offers the most telling entree for the gospel into the postmodern soul. Okay, that's quite an eloquent way of saying, uh, I'd put it a slightly different way, just simply to say this. We live in a culture where moral radar is defunct in so many ways. And yet it keeps coming back. So in our culture, people are rightly horrified at what Jimmy Savile has done. And yet, we teach our children many, in many different ways a sexually immoral view of life and, ex and, and then wonder why things go wrong. And what David Wells is saying, what the Bible is saying, is that sin is part of human life. There are people who dislike this whole idea of sin. In fact, 
I just watched my old friend Richard Dawkins. Uh, he's got a, a, a new series, yet another series on Channel 4, um, Sex, Death, and the Meaning of Life, I think is what it's called. And in the very first one, he says, the notion of sin is outrageous. The notion of sin is what holds us back. But that notion of sin is something that is deeply embedded within us, not because of religion, but because we are made in the image of God and because there are things that are wrong. And here's the trouble. You could be like me. I mean, it was uh, interesting. Yesterday we had a Thanksgiving in this church here for me being, uh, myself and Annabelle being here for 20 years and um, serving the church. And it was great to have that and I was very, very thankful for it. And some people said some very kind things and some very nice things. But I'm sitting there cringing because although it's true that I'm incredibly wonderful and all that kind of stuff, and I accept all that, all right? No false modesty here. But I know, I know in my own heart that there isn't a single person out there, out in the world, who has a worse heart than me. I know that. I know that, it, and it's not that I'm nursing, you know, there aren't bodies buried in the man's garden that you're going to discover in some big scandal that you dig up a patio or something and find. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that in my own heart, as in every single one of your hearts, there's a dark side, that there's greed, there's covetousness, there's lust. There's pride, there's arrogance, there are so many different things. And when you get ill, and when you have difficulties in your life, see, when things are going well in your life, it's actually much harder to deal with prosperity in some ways. But things, when things are going badly in your life, you become very often more conscious of your own sin and your own weakness. And that's why David here pleads. to the Lord. Lord, have mercy on me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to go on and talk about what other people have done to him. But he begins with himself because he knows that no matter what other people have done to him, in God's eyes, that's nothing compared with what he has done to God, what he has within himself. And I would always say that, that, that it is you, you, you pray for healing in your life. You pray for healing in your relationships. You pray for healing in the world and in society and in culture. You begin that prayer by saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And some of us, we, we find it so difficult to go there. And God really has to batter us. It's like that hurricane that's approaching the east coast of the United States just now. God has to sometimes send hurricanes into our life. So that we will fall down on our knees and pray this very, very simple prayer. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. He then goes on to talk about his experience, what I'm calling the practice. The principle is that you care for the weak and the needy, then the Lord will care for you. The plea is heal me from my sin. The practice, verses 4 to 9, is this, 5 to 9. My enemies save me in malice. When will he die and his name perish? I don't know... um, if any of you have ever had experience of that, someone wishing that you died, um, maybe not publicly, maybe not um, personally. Uh, I did once receive a letter saying, uh, it was quite funny, saying, I preferred David Robertson when he was nearly dead. And we should go back to that. Um, 
It wasn't particularly pleasant. But here is a man who's experienced a level of malice which is horrific. When everyone comes to see me, he speaks falsely while his heart gathers slander. Then he goes out and spreads it abroad. His people come into him and they say to him, David, you know, King David, you're a great man and we love you and you're doing a great work and we're fully behind you. And, you know, tell us, tell us what's on your heart and, and, and tell us, oh, we've, you've got such wisdom. And then they close the door, they get out and they said, see that guy, David? He's really unbelievable. And they gossip and they do more than gossip. All my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying, a vile disease has beset him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. People saying David's sick. King David is sick and he deserves it. It's his, God's judgment on him and it's about time that that happened. And verse 9, one of the hardest things possible. Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, who sat at the table with me, who was in my house, who had hospitality, he has lifted up his heel against me. Human opposition and the treachery of a trusted friend. Absolutely heartbreaking to experience. See, when you're let down by an enemy, it's not a letdown, is it? You expect them to do that. See, when you're let down by a friend, someone this morning as they were going out the door referring to a couple of articles I've written in the past few weeks said, David, in my experience, the people who've hurt me and wounded me the most, if not solely, have been my fellow Christians, my fellow evangelical Christians. And that really, really hurts. That really gets to you when people who are close to you, people whom you have trusted People who have you realized, people who you've just, you know, you've opened your heart just a little bit to them. You've shared, you've, you've shared burdens together, and then you find that they are gossiping about you, that they are miscalling you, that they are, they really, really hurt you. And this seems to be contrary to the promise that David had said Blessed is he as regards the weak. And yet here, He's been battered and he's been hammered by people who are supposed to be on his side. He's ill and they're mocking his illness. They're thinking the worst and almost rejoicing in it. And then there is a plea. Again, verse 10. But you, O Lord, have mercy on me. Raise me up that I may repay him. Well... I don't think David actually is asking about revenge. There are ways of looking at this. In this case, there are some Psalms where he is asking about revenge. But here, he's not saying, you know, raise me up so that I can go and gossip about them or so, so that I can go and laugh at their illnesses. The implication here is he's saying, raise me up so that I can prove them wrong. Raise me up so that I can continue your work. And there's a, a sense here of King David in his, his, his covenant kingship. He's asking the Lord to have mercy on him so that he can be raised and so that he can continue the work that God has called him to do. And it again is an incredible plea. He's seeking grace 
in respect of the opposition of his opponents. He's asking that his life be renewed so that he could show his enemies that he could do the task that God has called him to do. That those who mock at him would no longer be able to mock. That those who say, serves you right, it's what we would expect, that they would see that they were wrong. And then there is a promise in verses 11 and 12. I know that you are pleased with me, for my enemy does not triumph over me. In my integrity you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. David is saying that this blessedness for the weak, this blessed for the one who is regard for the weak, in his own experience is proved to be true. That even though he experiences severe opposition, mockery, sickness, hostility, and so on, and betrayal by friends, he knows that his enemy will not, does not triumph over him, and he knows that God will set him in his presence, in God's presence, that is, forever. Now, let me apply this to us, and I think most of the application should be obvious. I want to apply it to us as we uh, prepare to take communion. I want to apply it in the sense of your experience in the Christian church, those of you who are Christians. Have you ever been let down? Have you ever been harmed? Have you ever experienced what I would call spiritual abuse? Have you ever got to a point where you're just so worn out and weary and tired and exhausted that you think, oh, what is the point? You know, sometimes we're like, you know, you hear a baby. And when you're a new Christian, you're like a baby. And you, you know, you're fresh, you're full of life, you have needs and so on. Life's fairly simple when you're a baby. And then you go through life, and sometimes when you become a much older person, it's not always the case, but you get to a stage where you're just tired and you're weary. Your body is failing. Your experiences in life towards the end of your life are not that great. And you wish that there was just some way out. You are looking for it to be over. And sometimes it's like that in the Christian life as well. People do become weary in well-doing, become very jaded, very discouraged, very depressed. And the killer blow is when your fellow Christians stick the boot in, when your fellow Christians are the ones who are causing you to doubt and to fear, the ones who are giving you the frustration and making you angry and all the rest of it that goes with that. And I think the solution to that is this. You have to look beyond yourself and in a sense get over yourself. You have to look beyond them and realize that that they are basically just like you. You have to look, I think, at, at two things. One is you ask, how can I help the poor and needy? And the other is, and that's really asking, actually asking this. What would Jesus do What did Jesus do in these circumstances? And we celebrate that at communion tonight because Jesus was betrayed by somebody who sat at his table and who shared his bread, and that was Judas. And Jesus, you could even argue, was betrayed by Peter and was betrayed by the other disciples because they all deserted him in his moment of need. 
Jesus faced human opposition and Jesus faced bitter disappointment and letdowns. And Jesus was accused of the most horrendous things. And as he was on the cross, dripping with blood in absolute agony, his heart being ripped to shreds, people walked by and mocked him and said, hi, he trusted in God, let God deliver him. Godly people, religious people, walked past and mocked. Jesus went through that. And sometimes you and I carry that particular cross. And we need to do it in the way that he did. And we need to learn to look away from ourselves and to look to him. We're going to sing a song in a moment, which is a great song about um, being burdened and discouraged and heavy laden. Part of that song says this, do your friends despise, forsake you, take it to the Lord in prayer. When you are in this situation that is described in Psalm 41, you take it to the Lord in prayer. And as you do that, you see how God blesses. The last verse of this, of this song, Psalm 41, verse 13, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. This is actually the last verse of the first book of Psalms, which has gone from Psalm 1 to Psalm 41. It's a kind of summary thing. It's an editorial conclusion, if you like, to the book of Psalms. And it's just telling us this, that you can be here tonight and you can be in the midst of a most incredible discouragement, the most incredible storm, and you can still say, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. He doesn't change. Your circumstances do. Sometimes your circumstances will be fantastic, and sometimes they will appear to be awful. But in all of it, God does not change. The Lord, our God, is with us. We have a Lord who loves us and cares for us, I think, um, I think one of the most amazing verses in the whole Bible is Lazarus, when he died and Jesus was, as David Meredith was talking about, the, this, the, the one you love is sick. But when he went to visit and he was at his graveside and he wept, and the people said, behold, how he loved him. That Jesus cared enough about this man Lazarus to weep for him. I began by saying this psalm was about a sin that needs forgiving and sickness that needs healing. That can only happen through God. It can only happen through Jesus. How do we know it will happen? How do we know it's important? Because, not because of who we are, not because of what we have, not because of what we do, but we can only know it because of who Jesus is and to, to understand that Jesus loves us to the extent of weeping for us. We have some dear friends just now, we have people in our own fellowship who are ill. And in one sense it discourages us and it upsets us and so it should. And we weep for them and we pray for them. But please, I would say this to you. Do not think that your compassion is greater than God's and your love is deeper than Christ's. 
Do not turn around and blame God and say, don't you care, Lord, as though you are able to care more than him. We may not be able to explain why someone gets really ill. We may not be able to explain why they eventually die. Why what seems so wrong, and and it is wrong, how that just happens. But the one thing we have to absolutely stand on and be completely sure of is that nobody weeps more than Jesus Christ over the sins, illnesses, and death of his people. He came to free us from death, to free us from illness, to free us from sin. He cared that much that he died. You are burdened right now. Cast your burdens upon him because he cares for you. Let's pray. Lord, bless your word to us. Help us to apply it. Help us to understand it. You are a God who loves us. And help us to see how deep that love is. Lord, Some of us come to you and we are so burdened. It's so heavy upon us. We're tired. We are emotionally exhausted. We are spiritually worn out. We are physically struggling with so many things. We have so many questions. We are mentally, we cannot understand. We ask, oh God, that you would help us to look beyond that and to see the glory and the beauty of the Savior who loves us, who weeps for us, who intercedes for us, who gave himself for us. And help us to see that having been given Christ, along with him, we are graciously given all things so that nothing in heaven or hell, nothing past, present or future, nothing within us, nothing can ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, we bless you for that, and we luxuriate in it. We rejoice in the love of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.